Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Happy New Year and a government shutdown deadline is just a couple of weeks away. Some things never change. Here with a look at what the second session of a troubled Congress is likely to do, we turn to WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And this has not been a happy Congress, it's fair to say. <laughs> Boy, that is the truth. In fact, last year's Congress was literally one of the most, if not the most, least productive Congress Ever, the 118th Congress, uh, they only passed 27 bills out of 700 and some that were actually that became into law out of more than 700 that were actually passed. Uh, there just wasn't a lot done. As you well know, you had that big period where Kevin McCarthy took 15 votes to get elected speaker. And then you had later when he was uh, ousted as speaker, he had a, almost a whole month where they didn't get done, everything done. So all of that is backing up and causing us to be in a bad position position as we start 2024. I hate to say that as we're just kicking off the new year, but we're just over two weeks away from a partial government shutdown. Very possible. A lot of the lawmakers I've been talking to think that this is almost inevitable because of this January 19th deadline. Uh, the House just didn't get enough done, and nor did the Senate at the end of the year. And so now we have potentially a big pileup later this month. And then uh, there is a second, as you know, February 2nd deadline, and that could be the entire government shutdown shut down. And right now, the only off-ramp seems to be a long-term, short-term uh, continuing resolution, which is a unique proposal by uh, the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who actually wants to do a, or at least floated the idea of a continuing resolution that would go all the way through the end of the fiscal year. Democrats and conservative Republicans have said they don't want that. So normally you would have some kind of off-ramp here where we could get a short-term spending plan and then they could work things out. But they don't even have a top-line number for the overall spending for the government. So everybody really thinks that this is going to be crunch time, even in just the first couple of weeks of the new year. Yeah, with all these factions forming in both parties, it's starting to look positively parliamentary here. Right, exactly. And you know what's interesting about the House Freedom Caucus, which of course blocked a lot of the Republican votes last year, literally not allowing them to get to the vote, even though they would be GOP proposals. I'm wondering if they are going to have to rethink some of their strategy, because all through last year, the conservative faction, roughly about two dozen Republicans, blocking these overall House Republican proposals that were backed by then House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, they eventually actually allowed more Democrats to vote on some of these measures because that was the only way that they could get spending passed. And so now we're looking at this situation where everything gets blocked up just by a relatively small group of the 435 members of Congress, then you complicate that by the fact that the Republican margin has actually decreased because you have George Santos has been kicked out of Congress. Kevin McCarthy, once he was ousted, decided to leave Congress. They only had about a four vote margin already. So now it can get down to close to two votes. And while there is a special election coming up uh, in the Santos race, there's also another Republican lawmaker who's getting ready to leave for the private sector. So there's really a very, very tight tightrope here that Republicans are going to have to manage, and it's going to be really a big, big test for the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson. And just to clarify, McCarthy 
is not leaving at the end of his term. He's gone now. Right. He's actually gone now. Uh, he decided to leave at the end of 2023, and now there will be a special election to fill his seat, but that's going to take a while. So those seats are going to remain open for, um, in, in the McCarthy case, for p- potentially a few months. So this is really going to tighten things up even more so than it's already been in the House. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Well, they're not back yet, right? So what will be the first thing on the agenda, the spending thing they've just got to deal with one way or another? I I think that they're going to have to try to come to some kind of tentative consensus on this top line number for the overall spending, because that's really the key. And I think that's going to be the first thing they're going to have to tackle. And there really hasn't been a lot of indications of a lot of negotiating or things happening behind the scenes during the break. Sometimes that happens, as you know. Uh, The only negotiating has actually been on something totally separate, and that's on that supplemental package, which is a whole nother can of worms, which is, you know, for Ukraine and for Israel and issues related to the southern border. So it's going to be a need to get to that top line figure. And then what are they actually going to do? What are what is this conservative group of Republicans going to allow? If they're not going to allow a short term spending plan, then what are they going to agree to? They have given uh, the new House speaker some slack, but I just think that's going to really tighten as we move forward. Because they do have in the National Defense Authorization Act, which did get done, the president signed that, I think, the week before you know New Year's Eve, a spending line for the Pentagon, at least. Right. So they do have a debt agreement with the ceiling for the defense spending of $886 billion. That is one bright spot that they did actually get done. They've pretty much all agreed on that point. Another bright spot, potentially, is related to this January 19th deadline. They have what some people say is kind of low-hanging fruit in terms of the bills that they need to get passed by that deadline. I was talking with former House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, the Maryland congressman, and he says there is a potential to get an agreement at least on that first group of bills. But what he worries about is the second larger group of bills, which comes in the February 2nd deadline as part of that so-called laddered continuing resolution. And that's where there could be a potential legislative train wreck. From the contractor's standpoint, they, they're not sure whether they prefer a shutdown or a year-long CR. I think it's been about 25 years since there's been a, a CR that covered the entire fiscal year. Right. I think House Speaker Mike Johnson actually surprised a lot of people with floating that proposal because everyone was just assuming that he was going to go either back to the position that Republicans had, which has, as it turns out, has been relatively unrealistic to try to individually pass all of these 12 appropriations bills, uh, knowing that he's kind of cornered on this group of uh, conservatives who just don't want a short-term spending bill. He thought, well, maybe if I float it through the end of the fiscal year, that will allow them to to go along with it. But they have been, as you well know, uh, very stubborn on a lot of these spending bills. And really, this all goes back to last year when that uh, debt ceiling agreement was made by the former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy with President Biden. Uh, This was all supposed to be set up so that if they didn't reach some agreements, they would have a haircut basically across all the budget, and that would kind of push them into the direction of getting things done. But instead, uh, a lot of conservatives rebelled shortly after that agreement was made. And now here we are with a whole political stew once again heading toward a possible partial government shutdown. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. 
And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.